This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to the third installment of the Spring 2018 UC Santa Barbara Innovator Stories series. I'm John Greathouse. You can follow me on Twitter, at John Greathouse. Tonight we have Elizabeth Cholosky with us. <clears throat> Excuse me. Elizabeth is a seasoned leader in technology. She has an arc, a theme throughout her career. She has a nonlinear career, as most successful people do. Um, we're going to talk about it, but one of the arcs is customer and client service. That's always been an element in everything that she's done, so we'll explore that. Uh, she's also uh, created a, a real expertise in software as a service. You hear us up here talk about it as SaaS, uh, but software as a service is delivering software through the cloud um, on the Internet. She recently accepted a position at HG Data as the CEO, a super exciting company that indexes billions of un, um, unstructured documents every day. That's billions with a B. Uh, and they produce these technographics that service the needs of big companies such as Microsoft and HP, uh, Dell, as well as thousands of small to medium-sized companies. So not many companies can kind of pull that off where they offer a product that big, the biggest of the big companies uh, appreciate, uh, and the, but the smaller ones can also make, um, make available as well. Before HG, she was the CEO of a public company called support.com where she transformed that business from a services business, largely an outsourced services company, to a software-as-a-services um, business, much more valuable um, business model. Before support.com, she held senior positions at Citrix, where she was in the software as a service division, the SaaS division. Um, she was responsible for a number of things over the years, but um, she had a primary responsibility for GoToAssist and GoToByPC, two products that she drove hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue for, and she made them number one in their category for five years running. So that is not easy to do, I can tell you. She's repeatedly been recognized by the industry. This is sort of a nice thing. You don't look for these awards. You don't sort of seek these awards. Uh, but Elizabeth has been recognized three times by um, the Stevie organization and has won Stevie Awards in three different years, which I'm not sure very, very many people have done that. She received her PhD in political science from the University of Minnesota, and she received her undergraduate degree in political science um, from Franklin and Marshall College. So here, somebody with a liberal arts degree that's had a long, long uh, career in tech. She's also a weekend triathlete. She's being modest. She's actually um, uh, quite uh, a competitive triathlon athlete. And what I really like is she's taking that passion and she's combined it with a, um, a bit of philanthropy where she works with an organization called Exceeding Expectations. And they use the sport of uh, triathlons to help kids that are at risk and help them get on a path that's going to um, lead them to a better end. So it's kind of neat when you can take um, a passion like that and then put it to work to do good for others. Let's give Elizabeth a warm welcome to our class. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh. Hey. I can't help it if the truth is, the truth is flattering. It's not my fault. Um, so one thing I want to get, up, get clear up front I invited you to speak about five months ago, if I'm right. That's so right. Four or five months yeah, ago, yeah, something like yeah. that. I tend to, when I, you know, I, I care about this class, I curate it, and I really, I know that the people I ask are busy, so I give them a lot of lead time. 
Since then, Elizabeth has um, accepted a position in a company that I'm affiliated with. So th but it wasn't that, oh, she's working at HD Data, why don't I ask her? She was asked many, many, many months ago. Yeah. So, but I'm super excited that you're at HD Data. I'm an investor and I'm on the board, so I'm, I'm happy, very, very happy. Um, but I just wanted to make that clear up front. Yeah, that's all true. So you earned your undergrad degrees, I mentioned, in government, um, and you ended up getting you know, a PhD, which we'll talk about in a minute, and we'll talk about what you did with that PhD, so we won't go there yet. Okay. But before, or like while you were in um, undergrad and before undergrad, why government, and what did you think you were going to do with it? That's an interesting question in that, that I was studying government, I was studying American, studying American government. I was going to run for president. Really? Yeah, it's not too late. Honest to God. Don't say was. <laughs> I was. All right, um, she just made the announcement right here. I just broke news. <laughs> just, uh, Go on Twitter, Facebook, help everyone. And we, um, we, we need you. Go ahead. Anyway. Well, I agree with that. We need, we need, some, we need some, but enough of that. Um, so I, I got into to college. And I, you know, I love studying government. I thought I was pretty passionate about a couple of causes. All right, I'm going to back up because I was okay. kind of—I I didn't want to make a joke out of that. You really were said to yourself, "I want to run for president." Yeah, that I really, awesome. really did. Um, but then, you know, as many careers go, I started learning what it takes to right. run for office. Right, right. And then I also realized that a lot of people that go into politics were lawyers. So that's a lot of background, and yep. and and then a lot of other people that go into politics are very rich. So I didn't have the interest in being a lawyer, and I wasn't very rich, um, not at all. Um, and I, at the same time, I also understood that some of the real political issues I was involved with and interested in were more international in focus than, than domestic. Mm -hmm. And um, maintained my desire to go contribute to foreign policy and the government and doing better out in the world, right. but really switched my attentions to international relations. So, so you came yeah. in thinking a politician, yep. and then you left thinking international. International, okay. yeah. But I'm going to go back just one more time about wanting to be president. I love parents that are supportive of their kids' bodacious, crazy dreams. Was that the case in your – were your parents just like, Elizabeth, you can do it? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And wow. they, they really were. But, you know, at the time, um, so it was really strange for a female to even have any aspirations like that. But my, my parents were always like, you can do anything you set your minds to. Right, so right. just make sure that you know what you want and what, what you need to do to get it. So that's they a, were very supportive. That's a gift. And they were very supportive of, of education. So, um, so I come from a background of immigrant Ukrainian parents, and um, my brother and I were the first of the family to get out of college, but they were all about get an education because that, no matter what you do and where your passions lead you, you, you need that. And I I'm going to insist that you run now because that's a great story. <laughs> First-generation immigrant parents, you sit there at the dinner table and say, I'm going to be president, and they go, you should do that. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> so, so you get the degree, you learn you know, a little bit more about politics, say maybe that's not your cup yeah, of tea, yeah. and you think a little more international. So you went on to get your Ph.D., so yes. at the time, and I'm going to talk about what you did with it, but at the time, was that teaching? What was it, academia? What were you thinking? Yeah, and I, I, I wasn't interested in teaching. So I, I got very interested in defense economics because the, it was some of the issues that, that I was um, really hoping we could do better on in, internationally had to do with all the spend that was going into um, wars and, and weapons. 
And um, so I, I, that's where I started really getting interested in technology because with defense economics, you can do a lot of predictions and forecasting if you really get into the data and statistics and modeling. Mm -hmm. And so it started to come together. And when I went to grad school, I went to grad school because I wanted to hone my skills. And um, you know what it taught me was you can really learn to think better through challenging programs like that. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, I've, I've no regrets that I went through the program at Minnesota for, I think it took me four years with a dissertation. Which is fast for a PhD. It, it was fast for a PhD. I was um, pretty, pretty focused on wanting to get out and apply what I was using. Right. Um, and I, that kind of runs throughout my career, too, sort of the urgency to, to apply something mm -hmm. to real-world problems. Um, but I, I remember the first, first day I got to grad school and I sat across the table from my advisor and he's like, so are you going to teach? And I said, <laughs> I don't want to teach. That's, that's not how you impact people. Now I you know, realize you know, I'm sitting across from this professor who has dedicated his <laughs> right. life to doing impact in a very different way. Right, right. But, um, but it, was, it was great and I really got the skills that have, have really been the foundation of a lot of what I've done well, you mentioned for the rest data of my life. All the way back then, the way back data, then. data, data, data. That yeah. was, I mean, that's what you were focused on. Yeah, yeah. Was it a theoretical philosophy PhD or something? No, how can no, we no, get, no. How can we take real world data and apply it to policy? Yeah, yeah. So somebody came calling that you weren't expecting, and yeah, that somebody was true. the CIA. Absolutely. So tell us about that experience and then what you ended up doing with the CIA. So, um, so this back in grad school, it was Minnesota, and, uh, and we had recruiters that were coming to really figure out what the talent was at Minnesota and lots of different programs. It's a great school, has, um, particularly in econometrics and economics. There's some Nobel laureates out there. Um, but, but one day I got set up with by my advisor with this um, suited man with a tie, and he said to me, have you ever thought, ever thought about working at the CIA? I'm like, well, I want to go into foreign policy, because my intent was to move to Washington, D.C., and get, use my skills to do better foreign policy with the U.S., and I hadn't really thought about the agency, but the more I learned about it, the more I realized it's an important decision-making body mm -hmm. in, in the operations of Washington, D.C. We have the whole sexy overt side, right. but the CIA's analysis is really important for good decision making. Yep. So, um, so I went, went through the process, which was, um, it's done early, an 18-month process to, to get vetted through all what they, they put you through. I wouldn't Luckily, I, was, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know, I think you might have. Eight days in, they would have get anyway. <laughs> but, um, but it was pretty interesting. So you get there, you go to, was Washington what you expected? I, I spent a lot of time in Washington. Was it what you expected or wanted? Yes and no. So, so um, you know, you're hearing this theme of working on bigger and bigger problems through, throughout my career. The CIA and many of the research organizations in Washington ha have huge amounts of information that you can use to make conclusions and better information for us right. to make decisions on. Right. So from that, um, from that respect, it was better than I expected. Mm. So yeah, here, here I'm coming from grad school where, where you're begging and borrowing your next research dollar. And um, you know, I'll just tell an antidote, part of my dissertation was on predicting and forecasting conflict based on spend on, on weapons. Uh -huh. And to get some of that data, I literally spent months in the basements of various libraries that would stack up these um, 
documents that would chronicle patents. So I would go through manually marking down when a patent was going to be applied in a military area versus not to develop the data that I needed to do the modeling for my dissertation. I go to Washington, and here, here I am, still what, 21 or 22, right out, right out of, nah, I guess I had to be early, early 25 or so after I finished my, my um, PhD. But literally, I could redirect satellites to mm-hmm. gather the data in a Russian you know, tank production facility. Wow. So it was like a kid in the candy store. You know, I had everything at my fingertips and um, had really bright, bright, bright people working around me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, that was more than I expected. Um, where, where kind of, of was not what I expected and really led to me going out into the commercial world is uh, that it's a very, very slow process to get anything done right. in, um, in Washington. And I kind of applied that to the tech world for a long time, too. I refused to go to any big company because I just mm-hmm. was so frustrated with the bureaucratic... Um, hurdles that you had to get over to get something published. And right. I'll just say, I'll stress bureaucratic hur- hurdles because if you're thinking about going into the government, um, the CIA and its uh, analytical division is, is a very good place to go because it's not political hurdles. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's very insulated from the right and the left, and they're really out there to do good analysis, but you still go through the months and years of right, vetting right. to get anything new done. Right, and seeing the impact takes longer. Oh, seeing the impact takes a long, long Once time. Once you have that taste of, like, kind of startup, and I'm using that, you, you know, in a broad terms, yeah. of the relatively small company, you get a taste for that impact, you're like, wow. Yeah, I yeah. mean, if, you're, if you have that proclivity. Yeah. So I'm going to take the next student's question in a second, but first I want to ask um, Elizabeth about um, Steve Rosenberg. So tell me about how that relationship came about and how Steve helped you. And then we're going to talk a little bit about mentoring. Uh, Good. So. Great, great, great. Um, Steve Rosenberg was my boss at the, um, the one of the first tech companies that I worked for in Boston. And um, here, you've got a little bit of my background now. So I'm you know, obviously pretty analytical and pretty buttoned up with what I'm trying to do with problems. And I'm fairly raw because I just got out, out of school not that many years ago. And I'm now working in a commercial company. And um, fortunately, was this before PhD? No, this was after after the CIA. After the, after the okay, CIA sorry. sorry. And I had my PhD. Um, and I got a position to run all of field services for this company. It was a national company and doing quite well. Um, so I knew I knew the products inside now. I could explain anything to anybody. Um, but I was working with Steve, and we'd go into these big companies, and I'd be be describing a roadmap, and I'd be like. Oh, you're not going to get this feature for ten months because we, you know, we just lost our engineer in the data right. group, right? So it was like rookie mistakes like that, which I think I he realized that I had potential, but really needed the classic mentoring mm-hmm. to kind of coach that out of me. Right. Um, and he, we hit it off personally, so we were doing a lot of, um, you know, we can talk about the state of the world today, but we were doing a lot of traveling together, so you've got many hours outside of client meetings yep. where where you're just talking about business and personal things. We used to and, call it the red carpet test. Yeah. Like, would I want to be stuck in yeah, a snowstorm it, in the red carpet with this person? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were quite a few most times. Most of it, no. <laughs> most of the times, no. But um, Steve and I, took, Steve took the time to really help me get over some of what were, you know, 
I put them down to academic approaches to the commercial world, mm -hmm. use them and put them aside, but actually be more about getting the match between the product you've got and the people that are using it and, and being more, a more cooperative approach to that rather than dictatorial. Mm -hmm. So, um, so it, was, it was great. And some of the lessons that I, I take to this day are from, um, from Steve Rosenberg. You know, one of them is, is like, your job's A, but you're always doing B and B, B selling. Mm. So no matter what your job is, That's is good. A, yeah. you know, your second job and your important job is, is B. And I resisted that a lot because I, I was like, I'm not a sales guy. Those guys lie. They, <laughs> they you know, they right. stretch the roadmap. And it's like, here's how you can do both. Right. And it'll end up being better for your company and for, for the clients. So there were many and, lessons. And be ethical at the same time. And be ethical. That's, you know, that's core to what I think makes a good company and, yep. and a healthy client base. So, yep, for sure. Yeah, yeah. How, how long did that um, relationship go on? Did you stay in touch with them after you left? Yeah, or? yeah, we, we did. We're, we're in touch to this day. No way. Oh, yeah, 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 That's yeah. Awesome. And, and that was back in Boston. I've been out in, in Santa Barbara and California for 20 years now. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, and he's... Um, He's, I think he's just about ready to, to retire at uh, this point. Good for him. Yeah, so good, good for him. But he's went, gone he on to come country. out and visit Santa Barbara. He should. I've been trying to tell him <laughs> that just so that we can reminisce about it because it was it was an important relationship, and I'd like right. to figure out more kind of right. what his view of it was yeah. that we can bottle and up. And I think that would out. help you in your role now. Yeah. Which we'll segue to talk about. So when you're mentoring people. Um, you know, this whole, I hadn't heard of that term before, but you called it mentoring up? Re reverse mentoring. Reverse mentoring, sorry. Reverse yeah, mentoring. I, have a, I told you I wouldn't have made it the CIA. <laughs> I just remember something <laughs> five minutes ago. So reverse mentoring. So I'm sure some of the things Steve would tell you about your relationship with him would help you with reverse mentoring. But yeah. what have you done in that regard, and what, and what are your thoughts on reverse mentoring? Yeah, let, let me explain what I, what I mean by reverse mentoring and how, how it's kind of bandied about. Um, you know, so now I've run a couple of companies and, you know, I'm at this level on a company and we've got lots of people that are um, younger and at various pay points in their career working in these companies. But generally, you know, you get to be a CEO and you don't have the opportunity right. to really talk to as many people as you want at all different levels and all different ages. So reverse mentoring is actually seeking out um, people that are much younger than you with different experiences so that you can make sure that you're in tune with what's what's going on with different generational um, uses and you can you can read about this in the press and there are research firms that do it, but it's, it's nothing like um, befriending somebody who's going to help you really understand where things um, what's going on and you know from a crass technical commercial point of view you know what's what's going to be um, demand it next right. from the generations that are buying technology today. And I think that, that all good executives pay attention to keeping those relationships and those personal right. mentorship relationships right. to, to help you do that. So I'm glad you came up with that term for me or shared that term with me because for years I've told students, you know, I'll say there's an MIT forum event on Wednesday, which so happens to be. Um, and you should go and take a friend with you because you'd be shocked at the number of older people there that want to talk to you. Like, it's not as if they're like, oh, great, some students are showing up. <laughs> they're actually, wow, look, let's talk to them. Why are you guys here? They're, what are you curious about? What kind of apps do you use? And they're going to ask you questions that seem maybe a little bit silly to you, but they really want to talk to you. That's and they want to help you. 
They're yeah. there to network. They're, they're not there to like, oh my gosh, now somebody wants my help. Yeah. But they're really there to help. Yeah. They want to be part of the community. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, it's, it's extraordinarily beneficial personally to me, but as I said, um, it applies to doing better in business and doing better with your companies and doing better with your products. Right, I love that. I'm, I'm, I know it's a little late, but I'm gonna write about that. Okay, okay, it's good. a great thing oh, to write no, about. No. Because it helps young people, I think, would help them feel less nervous and intimidated, knowing oh. that there is that, that, that value that they're bringing. You guys have all the power. Why are you I know, intimidated? I know, well, not all of them, but there's a few. <laughs> we'll take the first student's question. I see that HD Data partnered with Salesforce. How important do you think your technographics are for businesses that are sending targeted marketing campaigns through Salesforce? Ah. Yeah, so, so we, we did do just that. So back in November, we released a, a product on the Salesforce App Exchange, and they have this new, new platform called the Lightning Data Exchange. So you know, data is just getting more and more important as a component or a lead component in the whole technology world right now. So Salesforce saw that, which had them start this lightning data exchange. Um, it's, it's really critical for the users of Salesforce, because what, what are people doing with Salesforce? So it's, think of, you know, it's the Rolodex, it's the, you know, the phone book for your customers at its core. But what do people do with that? They go out and they try to make sure that they can sell to other customers like the customers in that database, that they can sell more to their current customers, and that with the software as a service being the, basically the whole world now, so that they can retain their customers. And if you know, so I'll give you an example. So do it from the go-to products. If you know that one of your best customers has a small you're selling go to meeting into them and they've been a customer for five years and then all of a sudden you see oh they also happen to be using zoom us and it's like well that's interesting so that's an early warning signal that they're not quite satisfied with the products that you have and your client services people can pick up the phone mm -hmm. and use that piece of information to have a really informed conversation about why why a group would be using a competitive product and that could save literally you know a, a million dollar account for a company so people and companies are recognizing just how important understanding the technology stack is and the fact that we can put it right into Salesforce where the sales and marketing people are working every single day, um, it's great for them and critical and it's, it's a good product for us also. Yeah. And even be able to tell, not, not in all cases, but in some cases when the contract might be coming up for renewal. Oh, so yep. that's the, you know, you want to jump in there right before that contract renews yep. so you're not shut out. Yep. Lots, of, lots of good information for um, sales folks through yep. the HD uh, interface. Yeah. So you, when you went to Citrix, you had ended up having about 150 people. You were running product management and client support eventually. Yeah. And then you took over what's called P&L or profit and loss, which is essentially like being a CEO of that business. So you took over the P&L yeah. for the two products we mentioned, go to my PC and go to assist. Um, so what was it like being, uh, you'd already worked at some big companies, you'd worked at Commission Junction in the early stages. What was it like being sort of an entrepreneur at Citrix? So. Yeah. The company wasn't mega huge, but at that point, revenues were over a billion probably. During your tenure, they went to over a billion. Yep, yep. So, um, and then how did you apply? Sorry, just left. Yeah, so, so what did you learn, and then how are you applying some of those things you learned in that bigger environment to yeah. what you're doing now? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I love that term, entrepreneur, right. uh, because it really, really was. And the, 
I know some of you are evaluating whether you do your own startup or go to a small company or go to a big company and get kind of broad skills from a big company. Um, you, you can do both at a bigger company at times with the right company. So, so it, was, um, it was really exciting for me. We, got, we were growing, we were growing big, which yep. is when we divided into P&Ls, into these business units, and I took over the IT services, as they were called, products. Um, but what, what it allowed me to do is run this business with the, the backing and the confidence that I had this big company behind me that was going to pay, pay the paychecks. And you know, I've been in lots of startups, and you know, it, it takes a lot of time when you're running close to the bottom line to make sure that you actually can write the checks and, and keep the company going. So at a big company with an opportunity like running a P&L, you, re you really don't have to worry about that. You have to worry about just meeting those product and business goals that you set out, right. set out to do. And you also have the other thing that's great that you don't get in a smaller company or in a startup is you have all the resources of, of the big company. Um, and the third thing I'll put is, is you, also, you also learn great skills for running companies. Right. Because so, um, you are effectively running. Yeah. I mean, you have to put numbers on the board. You're not and you, you have to commit. I'm not saying it's, a, it's all a walk in the park and that, that you can't. You can't get your business unit shut down if you miss your, your numbers. You, right. you can, right. Right. but if there's an opportunity there, then, then you know that um, with the right perseverance and the right talents, you, you can grow within the company, and that's, that's what we did. And that's where I think knowing what your capabilities are and your skills are. Like, I would not be good in that role. I just know I, I wouldn't. I don't know about that. Oh, come really? on. Really? <laughs> no, and I'm not, I'm not being, believe me, modest. Um, um, falsely, I'm really being truthful here because I don't think I have the patience to make the case. Like I know what kind of what you had to go through because I knew a lot of those people at that company. That's I was there before <laughs> right. Elizabeth, yeah. and I just don't really think I had the patience to make the case. Right, so I think you have that that data driven analytical um, willingness to say here's here's what I think we should do and here's why and lay out the case. You know, and I'm more of that early stage like come on, let's yeah. do it. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> But I think understanding that as an adult really makes put, helps you put yourself in positions where you can be successful. Yeah. And you don't, you're not a square peg in a round hole and, and unhappy and miserable. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, when I went to Citrix, I, I definitely had to, um, to temper some of what I was doing. Because as I said, I, I was in startups. And yeah, you, can, right. you can just say, we're going to do, do this, this, damn it. You know, no matter, <laughs> no matter what. I don't care what you think. Um, and I... I got this phrase that I'd remind myself of over and over again, that you can get things done by command and control, and, and with smaller companies, and mm, with sort of mm. a single focus, yep, and yep. sort of not, not other things that you're going to interrupt if you just go wholeheartedly after that goal. Um, command and control works just fine. But in most circumstances, and anybody that's aspiring to be a product manager, I'd say, you know, put this up on your wall. It's um, not commanding control. It's convince and control. Yeah, you yeah, just, yeah. you make the relationships and you put your data in front right. of them and you make the argument two or three times and you bring people together. And it, it was a, a very much a way that you got to be successful within I, a big company. And, and I'd say even in a startup. I mean, I, 
I don't want to make it sound like, and people that worked with me know, I didn't just tell people what to do. Because I don't think in a yeah. startup, people yeah. that are attracted to startups want to hear that. Like, no. they, they want to be heard. But yeah. there was always that one point where I finally was like, okay, look, we're just going to do it. Like, <laughs> we've talked about it a bit. we got to keep going here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's where I think the patience factor wouldn't have worked for me. Because I could do it once or twice with a smile on my face. And then I was kind of like, we just need to do this. So yeah. let's yeah. do it. Yeah. But, uh, but I really admire that you, because that, I know what you pulled off there. I know a lot of the people there. They all speak so wonderfully of you and you took those products I mean they were as you said you know they were kind of flatlining maybe not flatlining but they were flat and going down yeah, yeah. and you made them number one in their category yeah. which is not easy to yeah. do yeah even under the best of circumstances yeah. Yeah. so you did it um, you know largely through through listening to the customer etc we can talk about a bit more about that but I but I want to touch upon the Stevie awards that you won were those all at Citrix, or did you win some of those at support.com? And how did those come about? Yeah, they, they were all at Citrix. Okay. And you and won it, three different years. Three different years. 2010, 2012, and 2013. Yeah, yeah. So what happened in 2011? Uh, yeah, what happened in 2011? <laughs> um, <laughs> damn, I must have taken a vacation. Um, but they were all during the years when the go to my PC and go to Sys was really emerging from its doldrums, their doldrums, I'll call right, it. Right. And, um, and it was great because the kind of techniques I was using, so we did it through just organic growth, so we, we had to really get the engineers passionate and back connect it with the, com with the customers so that they knew what to build. Um, and we did a couple of acquisitions, and, um, and we changed around the marketing for both products right. um, fairly dramatically. So that, that got the attention of the, the um, Stevie Award committee that's looking out at these products. Um, it it was interesting. So it's always nice to get awards. So it's, it's great. To win. But one of the interesting things for me is you you get put with sort of like executives and people trying to do similar things. And you know when you go for the the award ceremony, all the finalists get in a room and get to talk. So. It was as much about me, for me, about meeting and hearing what other people were doing so I could learn more and, and bring it back as getting the award itself. That Did you sense. not know that you had won? Ah, uh, you don't oh, know. Oh, no, I thought it was. You, you do. Um, so you, it's no, sort of like the remember. Oscars where you it's, have to smile even though you're pissed? Like. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like that. <laughs> so you won every time you were nominated? Yeah. The last two years, they have different categories. The, oh, okay. the first year, I got the overall one. And then the, right. the last two, they, um, I think I got silver. So, you know, it's the next category okay. down. So. so you still had a smile on your face. Yeah, oh, absolutely. You, you mentioned M&A, um, so mergers and acquisitions, buying smaller companies. Yeah. Um, I've always thought that'd be fun to do. I've always been on the sell side, yeah. not, not on the buy side. Um, what, what are some things that an entrepreneur listening to this, someone in the room, could, could really, really benefit from down the road? So when you're first starting a business, it's just chaos and madness. Right. But as someone who's bought company, purchased companies, yeah. have, did you see things where you're like, God, if they had just done this, they'd be so much better off? Well, I think you can say that about a lot of companies. But... Um, but with, with kind of looking at companies as targets, right. if you want to bring them into your fold and really expand what you're doing, right. um, I think this is good advice for a company regardless of that, but it's particularly good advice if you're thinking of selling. Um, be focused. Mm -hmm. Don't do too many things. Really find the, I'll say it again, the product market fit and put all your efforts behind that. The things that um, really, I think, get get companies kind of downgrade it when you're looking at them 
is when they tried that and they still have it around and they've got a couple of people working in an area that's not applicable to their, their main thrust, but they really didn't have the, the guts to get rid of it and keep going or back to their knitting. Or, or the confidence. Or their, so would uh, that come knowledge. out when you just interviewed? Like you're thinking on the outside yeah. looking in, that's an attractive company, and then you go talk to them and you're, and you're like, like oh, yeah, they're defocused. Figure, yeah, they're defocused. So focus is, is a big one. Um, I think the next step for me in talking to companies is whether or not I've um, met a team that has integrity and is honest. And that's yep. um, easier to tell than you think in initial conversations. So um, that's really important. And it'll be really important if any of you end up in that situation. To um, there's, no, there's no gain to withholding information if you're trying to make your company attractive. It doesn't nope. lower your valuation. It always it's comes out. It always comes out. So Might as well. It's really better for you to be the person disclosing it than in, in diligence having to go, oh, yeah. yeah I meant that, to tell you yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. Not good. Yeah. Not good. Um, did you ever see, a, did you ever see, other than dishonesty, were there other things that were just pretty much that was the end of it as soon as you found out? About it? Like maybe poorly structured or, or, or confusion around um, some of the early legal agreements or just sloppy? Um, you know, a lot, I think a lot of that kind of early stage sloppiness, um, you know you're going to have to clean it up. It's just part of the territory. Okay. Um, you know, the one that puts me off is kind of any, any kind of lawsuits because mm -hmm. that meant yep. it went beyond sloppiness to right, just com right. complete disregard. It shows they couldn't it. handle it. Could I mean, not that sometimes there's no way to avoid a lawsuit. But, yeah, yeah, but yeah. But usually yeah. you can sort of navigate yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. A lot of these patent lawsuits right, you, right. you can't do anything about. Right. But if it's, you know, certainly if it's, if it's customer suing a Ooh. startup, it's like... Walk away. Right. 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 Something went wrong there. Okay. Yeah. Good. Okay. That's helpful. We'll take the next student's question. Um, from working in public companies like Citrix Systems and Support.com um, to private companies like HD Data, your career has been incredibly diverse. Um, so, what aspects have you found personally appealing about working in like public versus private companies, um, and what aspects have been challenging? Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, so there's a, public companies can be very challenging. Um, you know, uh, down to, I really um, am an open manager and open leader, so I try to give all the information I can to everybody that's working in the company. Um, in public companies, you can't, you can't do that. There's a lot of information mm. that you can't disseminate to right. everybody because there's a rule. The public company, you've got public investors, and when you release a piece of information to a broad set of, of people, you've got to release it to all of your investors. So unless you want to go public with it, you're starting to violate some of the rules from the Security and Exchange Commission. Right, so so that that I think is a hard hard, and for me was a somewhat negative. Um, aspect of working in public companies. Um, I, I did enjoy and do enjoy the discipline of, of public companies in terms of reporting and guidelines for running the company and um, formality of financial statements. I, and you know, I hope with, with what I can do from having seen both sides and having that, that broad experience is take the best of those guidelines and make sure that the private companies I'm in are using them to, to their best advantage. Um, so, so there's it's not all it's not all big company public company no no good. There's a lot of goodness there. 
Um, but pri private companies, I think you, um, the, I put at the top of my list, private companies, you can, you can absolutely be more agile. So yeah. you, you can um, incubate and grow different product ideas and experiment mm -hmm. without having to release that information right. externally. Right. So it was, a, John mentioned at support.com, my job was to, to take what was service-based revenue, so we had about 2,000 um, agents throughout the U.S. working from their home doing premium tech support, so the second and third harder levels of tech support. But that revenue stream was um, getting crunched, and it's, it's a lower profitability than a product company. So my job was to get a product out to market. And um, to do that in the light of a public company was, was incredibly difficult because you can't hide expenditures in right. a public company. So all of the, um, any competitor we had could kind of suss out that we were doing something. And, you know, other, other people that um, are your investors that might not think it's a good investment. So public companies, the investors feel like they, they own you, and they do. It's legitimate. And if they don't agree with that decision, they can get really vocal. So you have to be able to balance all that in a public company. Whereas a private company, you don't have to report to anybody but the board. So if you've got the support of the board and you're all in agreement and you, you can really see your way to doing something new and different and great, um, it's much easier in a, in a private company. Um, so you know, I'm really, really glad to be at HD Data right now because we've got a lot, lot to do and a supportive board and, um, and I don't have to worry about that, that big investor management job, which is time consuming and not, not all that productive. For the yeah, company. just takes a lot of energy and oh. doesn't drive the business forward. Nope. So nope. Talk, we'll talk a little bit about support.com. So you, you're at Citrix seven years, yeah. a really good run for you. Um, you left to go to support.com at the time. It was yeah. about a $77 million public company, yeah. something like that. Um, also started by a woman, right? Wasn't it? Yes, the it was. Yeah, I met it her a few was. times. Very Did you really? Impressive. I know, yeah. I've never gotten to meet her. Okay. Very yeah. impressive woman. Um, and ran, and that was back in the late '90s. I mean, that was still not as yeah. common as as you would want it right. to be. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you used a lot of artificial intelligence. You created this thing called Chatbot. Mm -hmm. um, and you could speak to this better than I can, but just for context, it was it was the hope was that it would be able to scale support so that mm -hmm. you wouldn't have to have a person typing every response. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your experience with AI now. Obviously with HG it's different, but back then it was sort of AI 1.0. Yeah. Not perfect, yeah. but you, you know, yeah. it was evolving. Yeah. Um, when, what do you think needs to change for AI to really become, you know, the point where I can't tell if it's a, a bot or not? Yeah. And what did you kind of learn from support.com experience that you're putting into use at HG? Yeah, well, the, the first one kind of, well, what, what do we need to, to really get the power of all right. the AI learning into all our products so that we've got better experiences across the board? Um, I think the technologies and the algorithms and machine learning and all the, the advanced statistics that are going on, that, that's going to continue and it's going to be great. And so that's on its own trajectory. But there's still out there just all these disconnected systems. And to get, particularly for a support problem, the information that you need so that an automatic um, entity behind the scenes can connect that all together and make the right decision the hard part's not the AI. The hard part's the black, blocking and tackling to right. get the connection to what you need. Whereas, you know, human with a lot of knowledge, 
um, can, can go and read freeform text. And, you know, we, we haven't made a breakthrough mm. yet with something like that. We don't have the kind of robot that can just go to the, go to the website and read tips and techniques and, or remember that they got a product alert with a firmware upgrade from some product and it's stuck in their drawer and it's not posted online anywhere. Right, right. You know, it's that kind of stuff, I think, that's preventing a real, real breakthrough. Um, and then what, what are, and when you're looking at AI, it's it, completely different, you know, delivery yeah. and infrastructure. Mm -hmm. But uh, were there learnings that you're, that you're kind of bringing to that either development process or the way that's being rolled out? Yeah, and um, one, one of the learnings, and we were just sort of getting give this going at support.com when I left, is to really leverage the information, the people and the teams that are outside your four walls. Mm -hmm. So... Um, there's a lot, a lot of stuff going on at many, many companies. You know, everybody knows Google and, and you know, Amazon with some of what they're doing around the whole AWS um, deployment. But you, as a smaller company, we're a small company, right? So yep. HData, small company still. You can leverage all this stuff that's going on outside to bring it into to your company. And that goes for any startup you're thinking too. You know, don't reinvent the wheel. Go, go look at what some of these big companies are doing and, and it's not even stealing from it because they want you to use a lot of this advanced technology. Mm -hmm. And at support.com, I don't think we did that fast enough. And it's one of, um, one of my jobs here. You know, we're here in Santa Barbara and it's even harder to convince people that that should be part of their DNA because you don't walk out the door and anywhere up in the valley you walk out the door and you sit down at Starbucks and you're going to overhear a conversation right, that may, right. may, may be interesting to you and nobody minds you saying, hey, I just heard you talking about such right. and such. And it just happens like that. And so, so my job here is to make sure that we get out of our four walls to leverage the kind of thing that I think we can, particularly in areas that are advancing like AI. Right, right. Yeah. Yep, and it's happening in Bay Area, it's in Pittsburgh, okay. and there's these pockets of, yeah. of AI. Yeah, uh, yeah. Boston, obviously, yeah. MIT. Uh, so one thing you did, I'm going to get the next student's question in a second, but one thing I really admire about your tenure at sport.com, and I know is, is something everyone can learn from, is the way you owned your, you defined your space. And it's like, you could tell she was good at marketing. Because <laughs> a lot of marketers will say those words, and then they fall completely flat. Like, they just can't do it. Yeah. And the concept is, don't just, like, you know... Don't always be one step behind your competition, but just to find a whole new space and say, this is what we do, we're number one, and then let other people try to yeah. become number two. It was fun. So you did it with um, support interaction optimization. Never yeah. that term didn't exist before. Yeah. You, 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 know, you called it SIO. Um, and that ultimately led you guys to winning company of the year with Frost and Sullivan. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. like playbook, textbook, yeah. marketing, but you pulled it off. So what, what are some things we can learn or what, what's some advice from entrepreneurs that want to break away from the pack? Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, anything like that, I think, starts with recognizing the problem. Right. So so it doesn't come up. You don't sit back and you say, I want to invent a new category and let right. me go do it. The problem that we had is we knew we had the core of the cloud product that we were putting to market that customers wanted and was very advanced. It was this um, decision make, new form of decision making with a lot of stuff we've been talking about. But I couldn't find any way to get that out in a um, easy to understand way, comparing it to like things that, that other companies were using. And then I also had the very practical problem of everybody wants to know how big your market is. 
and that's going to be true for any of you that start a company. You're going to get asked, how, how big is your total market? And when you develop this product, how, what's the segment of that total market that you're going to be able to address? And I couldn't answer that because this was new, and that's new products have that problem. So I went out and I worked with a number of consultants, and we did some heavy lifting internally. I had a great guy working with me that came from Deloitte Touche. It was on, on my staff. And we created that category and started really marketing to it. And, and the best thing, it wasn't company of the year, it's when other companies Start started using, using the term. <laughs> right. That's, that's, that's what I work. Really, yeah, yeah, that's what I really like. competitors start referencing it. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Hard to do that. Uh, we'll take the next student's question. Um, I view women who are leaders in the technology industry, such as yourself, as role models. What advice on building leadership skills would you give to young women in technical fields, considering the technology industry is still largely dominated by men? Yeah, it, it certainly is. Um, so I think my biggest is don't give up. So we've got a problem with, with this whole area. So right, right now, there's some good studies with McKinsey and the Lean In organization, and you can see that women and minorities are starting to make inroads into the lower levels of, of companies. So we're starting to get that talent pool to be much better represented at, at lower levels. But there's been no progress in the last 10 to 15 years on director, senior director, VP, and CEOs in terms of the ratios. And with the people that I see, um, my honors and, and all my female friends and colleagues, there's been a tendency over the years to, to stop because they'll, they'll hit They'll hit that one roadblock and they'll go do something, I'm afraid to say, something easier than staying pursuing your career. You know, I say if you stay and you pursue your career, you're gonna, you are going to get rewarded um, because, it, you know, talent, talent over time gets rewarded. So that's, that's the biggest thing, I'd say, from kind of what you can do to control your own destiny. Show up for work every day. It's a, a very, um, you know, underpromoted skills just keep keep showing up but that also you know we talked about mentorship and and I think that's um, that's really also important for being able to promote your career and, and grow and find the opportunities is to make sure you're asking for that mentorship as well as as seeking out um, and being in the right place at the right time because you know you can ask and somebody can be way too busy to, to do it but just keep keep going with, with that. And um, I think the third thing I'd say is be, be vocal. So be vocal in, in meetings, be vocal in meetings like this. Don't, don't just sit back and um, because think, you know, think of something that's a point of view that will allow your, literally your voice to be heard. It doesn't have to be some breakthrough idea. It just means that you're part of the conversation. So I, I think there there's some general things that that I think um, you know if I had known them beginning of my career I think you know maybe I would, would have been CEO ten president. years ago maybe I'd be president but um, but they're they're not they're not hard you know one one thing I'll I'll mention on men, mentorship and I'm I'm worried about this and I'm trying to do my best at HG Data and anybody else I talk to with all of the um, 
the things that have happened horribly over the last 18 months and all exhibited by the, the Me Too movement and the vocalization. I'm, I'm worried that some of the men in senior positions will be hesitant to mentor females. So it's our job as, as women to make that a comfortable situation for the men in business today because they've all been put on notice that this is a big deal and, and they're, you know, people, people that have been sort of on the right side of integrity all their lives are even hesitant now because of how, how um, raw all this is. So if, if you're in a business situation, it's as much on, on our shoulders to make sure that we confront that and make people comfortable to interact as human beings as opposed to men and, and women. So I could, I could do a whole talk on yeah. oh, kind of my opinions of so, how we do this. Well, we can, we can talk more about it. I, one thing that I tried to do, um, you know, I did many things wrong, but one thing I did do in meetings if it was, you know, men and women, because I've worked with a lot of women. Yeah, yeah. We better. had a great... They were, better. <laughs> they were better than the men. But I would make sure that I wouldn't let somebody dominate the conversation, because I felt like if, some, if everyone here in this room should be in the room, and they should have been, right, mm -hmm. then I want to hear from everyone. So what I would do, this is a, really for anyone that sees this situation, I would go, okay, okay, Elizabeth, okay. I haven't heard from you yet, or you haven't had a chance to share, and I can tell that you have something you want to add here. And then I would just let that person. And nine times out of ten, probably nine and a half times out of ten, they were like, oh, and they had something to add. Yeah. But you know how meetings go. Sometimes yeah. they just get dominated by a couple people, and everyone else just sort of goes, well, I guess it's their show. And yeah. So be that person that draws the silent voice out. Yeah. And what you'll find is over time, that voice will speak up more and more often because they'll yeah. be more comfortable. Yeah. Yeah, gain confidence and, and all that. And, and I think as so many more seniors, it's your job to help those people gain. gain. Obviously, they have to walk through the door ultimately and do it. Yeah. But you can help, you know, you know mentally sort of stimulate them to, to go ahead and speak up. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's an important issue. I mean, it's really one that I think this generation is going to fully solve. I hope that I, I hope, hope by so. then it's fully solved. <laughs> My goodness, I thought it would have been 20 years ago. I thought it was going to be solved by now, but yeah. it's obviously not. And the, Batons to this yeah, class. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about triathlons. So I know that's <laughs> your love, and, and that's one of the ways you've, you've tried to get some balance in your life. Yeah. And I love that you've worked it in. Um, you've worked a philanthropic element into it. Yeah. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what – are there other things you do proactively to get balance? And tell us a little bit more about the charity. Yeah. Yeah, so, so I, I do think it's really important to, um, to have work-life balance. Um, you know, early on in my career, there was a, a woman I really looked up to. It was one, one of the startups that went big, and she was the CFO, and she got covered by, by Forbes magazine as she was doing some really innovative deals. And one of the really sad quotes from this is she had a couple of kids, and the quote from her was, I have no life. I don't see my kids. It's all about growing this company. And, um, and she eventually just quit cold and couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. And you know, that's what I mean about you know, stick with it. To stick with it, you gotta figure out how to balance that stuff. Of course she wanted to see her kids. Of course she wanted to see her husband and her friends. Right. So, so balance is really, really, really important. Um, all of us in the world and technology today are pretty much, uh, we called it at Citrix, um, life slicing. So, you know, you're not going into work at 8.30 in the morning and coming home at, at 8 at night, but you might end up doing 
12 hours of work over the course of the day because you're doing a little bit of breakfast and you're doing some, you know, right after supper because you know there's something important going on, and the job gets done. Um, so, but you might take off to see a soccer game. You might actually. That, thank you for adding that because that's what I meant. Because you've got slices of your life in the middle of it, and you know, most a lot of companies. Here's a better statement. Evaluate the companies that you're going to as to whether they they have the same attitude with being able to have a balance like that. Um, if there are certain jobs where you've got to be at a desk answering the phone, nine, you know, in certain hours, of course. But um, really, really um, fertile companies with good ideas recognize this life slicing and allow you to do it. But you know, I tr I try as best as I can to make sure that that's okay in the companies I've run. But there are people that that won't do it. Mm. They they won't allow themselves the the time and recognize that that they need a life outside. So yep. you know, you've got you've got to have the company that supports it, and many many more do today. Yep. And recognize that that we're in a world that it's easy to do. Um, easier to do, but you also have to, to put it as a priority for yourself. So, um, so I'd take that kind of as you go into the working world. I, I'd make sure you know principles I want to follow, and make sure that I've got good companies. That's that would be one of them. Um, besides triathlons, I mean that takes takes a lot of time, but yep, um, yep. but I, I love to travel. So that's um, you know last year. As I was um, relocating back to Santa Barbara, uh, I got to do do a lot of travel to Bali, and we went mm. to um, Dominican Republic and Costa Rica, and you know, so we, we had uh, a good time because there was a lot of flexible time that I had, and mm -hmm. I was doing a lot of consulting, so you can also do that from from wherever because you're not on the client site all right. the time. Right. So travel's big, and um, food and wine. So that's why I have to do triathlons because <laughs> I really like food and wine. <laughs> And so That's you got to have some combination. So um, how you know, did, how did you, how did you get involved with the nonprofit? So so um, I've been doing triathlon since '96, so long 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 time now. Um, and over the course of that, um, one of my friends that got got me into this, she um, has. She was a teacher in her past life and really started working with some students in San Bernardino School District. Mm. So there's a lot of at-risk kids out yeah, there. Yeah. Um, and so she asked me if I, if, she, if I would help her to really kind of try to develop some of what was going on with her coaching career. And that led into me get, getting a little more involved with exceeding expectations. But it's, um, it's interesting because you've got these kids that... Um, you know, there are lots of sports programs in school, but um, she's got a different philosophy with triathlons. It's about education and goal setting. So if you don't show up for practice, if you, you, know, if you don't work at the goals that you've set for yourself, um, that's an indication that you're not going to set your goals in the academic area. And then she also, all the kids in the program have academic goals that they have. And these are like little six-year-old kids six-year-old oh, kids, all the way up to kids going off to college. But, um, but I saw how combining kind of goal setting in sports with goal setting in academic lights can mm -hmm. take some of these kids that, that have really tough, tough lives right. and give them the, 
the confidence that they can graduate from high school and go on to college. Um, one great thing about this charity also is that there's a guarantee. It's a small charity, but if you if you go through exceeding expectations and you get into college, the charity will make sure that you don't have a financial burden from the oh, college. That's fantastic. So it's a combination of making sure that you know all the right grants are applied for, but then if it's a check that has to be written, that's what we raise the money that's for. That's wonderful. There's something like um, I should have the right number, but there's something like twelve. 12 kids, a few have already graduated, but the rest are starting to go through college. And nice. it's, it's a great, great way to do it. And you know, you know, like when you're donating a dollar or giving an hour, it's going right to the, right to that charity. There's no, right. no middleman there. Yeah, good for yeah. you. That's yeah, wonderful. yeah, yeah, it's a good charity. So let's end on a question about HG. So I know it's okay. early days, relatively early days for you there. Um, the company's still got a lot ahead of it. Where, where do you see the company? Or what would be, oh, like, yes, we did it in five years. What would the company look like and what would it have accomplished? So um, I'll do it in two years first. Okay. So two, two years first, we're, um, we're on the map as a leading company in a bigger space. And the bigger space that we're playing in is this marketing sales automation space. So right now we've got this, this gold standard for data and we're very well recognized, but we're not a leader in the space because we don't really do a broad range of things that needs to be done. I think we can get there. I think it'll, it'll um, I think we've got some things within and some things that we'll, we'll associate with the product, mm -hmm. but I think we can make that name so that we're right up there with all, all of the big players. Can we become a Marketo? Not in two years, but I think we can right. be starting starting to be referenced as kind of that kind of up and comer. I think that's a, a two year goal externally. Internally, um, I'm dedicated to keeping this company in Santa Barbara. Um, <laughs> there's a tendency for technology companies. In we Santa haven't talked about this. this is no, great. No, that's this where is, my heart is yeah, too. Yeah, there's a tendency in in technology companies in Santa Barbara to get to a certain size and move, move out of Santa Barbara. They get a senior exec or they get a, an investor that says, oh, you gotta be in the valley and that's right. usually where they go. Um, I think we can get all the benefits of the you know, brain infusion from what's going on, not just in the valley, but there's a lot going on in LA and, and everywhere else sure. and grow it in Santa Barbara. So, um, you know, how big will we be? I, you know, I hope we're, we're two or three or four times in, in a couple of years. Mm -hmm. In five years, it's a little, a little hard. I, I stopped doing five-year projections, so don't ask me for that in terms of the financials. Financials, but um, but I think that there's there's one of two ways that we could go. We could still be a standalone company. You heard heard some of my. I'm so glad to be at a private company. So I, I don't know that I'd particularly be positioning ourselves for an IPO because right. I, I do think we can run a lot faster privately. Yep. Um, but there's also joining forces with a, with a bigger company, and that could be a, a very good thing. Um, it's a great thing for Expert City. I mean, yeah. you you went yeah. through that, yep. and, you know, even though. Um, Things have changed dramatically with, uh, but you know, for but that was a life-changing event for a lot of us. Yeah, you know, we sold that company to Citrix. Yeah, and yeah. And, and for 15 years it was a, a right. really pillar. At one point it was the biggest private employer, right? I know. I was so proud of that. Yeah, me I too. Would, I would tell my students every year at that time, and it's the largest. 
after UCSB in the county, I think, or something like that. It was yeah. the largest right. player. Right. And we were proud that we kept that company here. So Procore is another one, Lindo.com. I mean, there's Appfolio. we have our Appfolio. We have our public uh, Inogen, our public company success stories. And so yeah. we're going to make HG in the next one. Yep. I, I am dedicated to that. That's awesome. Thanks yeah. for coming, Elizabeth. Thank Appreciate you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.